Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Dr. Josh Mermelli joins the podcast this week. And Dr. Josh is a licensed psychologist, and we talk about current mental health trends, what is self-sabotage, and how we can release the more joyful parts of ourselves. In other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So click the link in the show notes, check out all their products, and use the code EVERYBODY at checkout for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 165 of Something for Everybody with Dr. Josh. Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashbitz. Dr. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about my favorite subject, uh, mental health. And as you're an expert in that area, I'm excited to pick your brain on a few things that I've just been uh, sort of been thinking about. And I, I think you can help me maybe uh, uh, get an answer or figure out which, uh, which is best. But before we do all that, I have a very important question to ask you. And that is, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? Well, thank you for asking. I am doing well. You know, it's so interesting. As soon as you said um, we have an expert in mental health, there's something about that expert word that as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, shit, he's got the wrong guy. <laughs> you know, that fraudulent stuff kind of creeps in. That feeling of, am I good enough? It's so interesting how primitive some of that wiring is, some of that language is. So it's so, and I've been doing this work for many years. I've been in my own work for many years, and it's really still so striking how insidious that belief of I'm not good enough, he's got the wrong guy can be. So as you're introducing me and as I'm listening to my own inner monologue, it's really, um, it's really cool to kind of notice and be present with those emotions and that experience. But I'm doing really well. It's such an honor to be here and talk about a topic that is so near and dear to my heart as well. Yeah, that brings up a lot of um, thoughts in my brain about what you're talking about, because I, I mostly work with athletes. Mm -hmm. And we have a saying with athletes that, and I think probably with most people can adopt this saying, but it's like, you're never too good to get better. Right. You know, and that's, that's on like one side of the bridge. On the other side of the bridge is sort of what you're talking about, that you think even after all of this stuff that you've done, like this real credible thing that you can grip onto that you've actually done, and you still sort of think, mm, am I not good enough yet? Mm. I have that experience whenever I'm meeting a new person, whenever I'm meeting a new patient for the first time, and I'm scared of not having that experience because it keeps me interested keeps mm. me engaged in some ways it keeps me on my toes not in an anxiety um producing way but in a curiosity engendering way i'm genuinely curious about novel experiences and i'm i'm scared 
of not being curious any longer, of not being kind of on my toes, because we're talking about really important stuff, you know? So, so nervousness, that sense of angst, that sense of apprehension, I've learned to reframe in time into a sense of excitement, right? Yeah, you feel like it gives you your edge. It, exactly. You know, and I, I think about that in regards to like self-talk because with athletes, a lot of times the ones who reach the highest levels have this brutal self-talk. Everything is demeaning and critical. But in one sense, if they have a bad game, they're like, hey, dude, you freaking suck. You need to get into mm. the batting cages. And so it pushes them to go work in the batting cages. And then now with all this stuff around mental performance and mental skills and mental health, they're like, there's a different way you can go about it and still have your edge. But a lot of these athletes are scared because they're like, well, well, is my drive going to go away? Is my determination right. going to go away? Like what's going to happen if I actually start talking to myself maybe a little bit more compassionately with still having that edge about you? And I think that's such an important distinction like just for, for anyone to make because we're all just trying to do the best that we can. That's all we can do. <clears throat> um, but I, I was thinking about something before, before we popped on. Um, it being May when we're recording this, so it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And the conversation around mental health, even just over the last couple of years, has completely changed and altered and grown. And that's wonderful. But mm -hmm. I, I think one part of the conversation that hasn't been getting touched on enough is the people like you who are actually in the trenches trying to get people to their healthiest, best versions. Yeah. And so my question is, like, what, what do you think people get wrong or don't notice or just don't realize about actually holding all of these people's pain and problems and then having to also deal with your own life and potentially kids and romantic partners and just like mm -hmm. um, things like that. That's a fabulous question. I think, you know, it's, it's, people will say to me, do you take, the content of sessions home with you? Do you ruminate? Do you? And the truth is, is I really don't. I feel like over the years, whether it's conscious or otherwise, I've gotten pretty skillful at being able to leave stuff at the office at the office, but that's the conscious material that I'm leaving at the office. There's a whole well of subconscious unspoken material, you know, by compassion fatigue, taking a look at that, how burnt out am I? for other intimate relationships in my life? Am I snappy with my toddler at home when he hasn't you know, promptly put away his toys? Is that a function of not taking enough care of myself during the day? Have I seen too many patients in a given week? Um, I think unfortunately the mental health professional and I'm a licensed psychologist, there's really still in 2023, such a taboo tone of receiving mental health support for mental health professionals. There really just is. We claim that there isn't. We claim there's such a taboo tone. And within certain licensing boards, there can sometimes be a very kind of crude and um, punitive role that these licensing boards might serve if they were to find out, for example, that a licensee has a history of mental health or substance use disturbances in their past. Mm -hmm. And I feel very strongly that most great therapists themselves have navigated through their own shit, right? You kind of 
it's hard to show up and be a conduit for meaningful change if you haven't gone through and hopefully overcome or be in the process of overcoming that strife and that struggle. So I think the hardest part for me is that kind of um, unspoken material peeping through my own compassion fatigue um, bubbling to the surface and not always really being clear of when enough is enough professionally until it's too late. You know, because it's not like I can say, well, I've seen 30 patients and therefore I'm done. Sometimes I can be fried after seeing 25 patients. Sometimes I can see 43 patients and be ready to see five more. So it, it's not so much the content as much as it is the culmination of everything and what's happening internally with me. And sometimes that's hard to pinpoint in real time. Hmm. Do you... Do you think there's a bit of potentially shame built in a licensed professional feeling like they need also to see a licensed professional? Because if they themselves need help, how can they be someone who can help someone else? Because that's, a, that's yes. obviously a very logical thought pattern that someone might have. Yes, it, it, it is. And yet we would, I would never want to go to a personal trainer who hasn't hit the gym before. I would never want to watch a Broadway actor who hasn't themselves sat front row at a Broadway show. I wouldn't want to be courtside at a Lakers game watching professional basketball players play if they've never been to a game themselves. There's a nuance and a rhythm that takes place only if we're on the recipient end sometimes. Right. It's hard to be expert if we haven't benefited from expertise and therefore if we haven't struggled in some way. So I think, unfortunately, there's not enough emphasis on the importance and prioritization of personal struggle. We all have it, but there does seem to exist this shamefulness in the licensed mental health profession surrounding receiving mental health services. It's not something that's ever stated overtly, but it does feel like there's this taboo tone. And I really want to change that. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I see it, I see it with with coaches, right? Because mm -hmm. there's now an emphasis on athlete mental health, which is fantastic and beautiful. But you also have to look at the person who's serving these people. Like if I'm not at my best and I'm feeling tired, fatigued, overwhelmed, anxious, stressed, and I go and I talk to my team, which is 14 year olds, they're going to, they're going to receive that, that version of me, which is not the best right. version of me. It's like the same way you want to line up your words and your actions, right? If I'm mm -hmm. telling my clients or my teammates to do these things, to have a breathing practice or journal or meditate or make sure you get enough sleep and all of these great things that you can do and i do none of those things then it just it doesn't line up that way maybe it's right. one because i don't i feel like i don't have time potentially if you're seeing you know 30 40 clients in a week i understand that and then you want some personal mm -hmm. time you want to spend time with your kid but there has to be this i can't say balance because that doesn't exist but maybe this i don't even rhythm. know the right word yeah rhythm yes yeah that we can apply that the people who are doing the helping also can have the help and it's just like this big support organism that allows yeah. for uh you know people to flourish in the best way they possibly can i remember being so well said i remember being a student in graduate school and 
the program that I attended, they did not require students to be in their own analysis, their own therapy. And I don't know the legalities associated with that, but um, there are programs that do. And I think it's really unfortunate when a therapist who's treating cases has not undergone their own work. And you can tell the difference. You know, you really just can't in terms of sitting across the room from someone who's never undergone their own psychological work, but is in the zone of expert. And it doesn't mean that they don't have beneficial things to offer. I'm not saying that right. everyone has to have a history of pronounced trauma in order to be able to be effective. But what we know is that the toughest experiences make us who we are. We mm. grow through the painful grit and overcoming that is what makes us capable of offering healing support. So I really am aligned with everything that you're describing. I'm, I'm so on the same page. I think we have to create a safer space for the helpers getting help. Yes, because if we're going to advocate for better access to mental health care, which is great, trying to reduce any of the barriers that might exist, which there's a lot of them and, and good people are doing really good work then. And more people are seeking those uh, treatments. Awesome. But if the number right. of mental health professionals keeps going down, then what what are we meant to do? Then all right. this work we're doing to decrease the barriers has no effect because people can't see anyone. And I, roof, I like, I can't imagine having to see that many patients in a week. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes like, sort of like you're you're reducing the amount of time for clients. You don't get to do your notes in between. You don't even get to take a snack in between or a nap or right. go for a walk because you're just trying to churn all these things out. And that and that's not beneficial for anyone. So I think Right. Yeah. So that's just what I, I've been I don't know, thinking about that and figured you had some insight in it. Well, thank you. <clears throat> but I was also thinking about um just just current trends in in mental health um what are what are the trends that you're noticing maybe um in an upward spiral and sort of in a downward spiral mm -hmm. well i think COVID did a number on us it's still doing a number on us we're spending more time on social media than ever before and ironically we are less social socially interactive than we've ever been before kind of doesn't make sense to me. So um, we're seeing an onslaught of symptoms of depression, anxiety, particularly in adolescents. We're seeing more completed suicides, unfortunately. So the means through which suicidal um, you know, plans are being carried out tend to be more lethal, um, whether they be carried out regardless of which gender they're being carried out by. So those are really unfortunate phenomenon. We are seeing greater surges of awareness for mental mm -hmm. health issues and difficulties. You know, there's a lot more conversation and dialogue around mental health disturbances and also supports than ever before. It's not that our rates of mental illness are that significantly more prevalent than they were 30, 40 years ago. There is some slight increase, but our rates of exposure openness, vulnerability, and comfort in talking about these themes has amplified exponentially. So that's a really good sign. We're talking about what's uncomfortable. Yes, we are very much so. And I, I think on the other side of that coin is this, uh, this beast of social media, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
I, I can't demonize the thing. I, I use social media every single day. So that would be very hypocritical of me. But if we can look at it sort of uh, in a dynamic way where it has good parts and bad parts, I think potentially one of the parts that has been not so good is that, yes, more people are talking about mental health, but I think then it's it's sort of caused people to self-diagnose some things that mm-hmm. might not be potentially all the way true or factual yeah. or real. Um, and especially with adolescents, they have this, this, just like we all do, but I think it's a little deeper in adolescents. They have a deep sense of belonging. Like they just right. want to fit in. That's all right. I wanted as a young boy. I just wanted right. people to, I wanted a group. And so right. if all of my friends are anxious or all of my friends are depressed or potentially self-harming, like I'm going to, I might partake in that, even though that right. might not be my real feelings. So I think that's very complicated too. It's true. Not every ex-partner is a diagnosable clinical narcissist. In fact, <laughs> the rates of narcissism are very low. Clinical narcissism is present in around less than 1% of the population. And if we were to go on social media feed at any moment's notice, you know, it's suggesting that 40% of people are. How many times have we heard the buzzwords gaslighting, right? Um, I mean, that is something that I've heard more than ever before. And in some ways, I think you're right. Trauma response is another one. It kind of waters down the significance of these very real conditions, experiences, symptoms, and it creates um, confusion, right? Tons of confusion. It's like, I I was already confused as a 13-year-old boy. Like I'm growing, I'm changing, I'm moving. I like this, I like that. Should I like this? Should I like that? Am I going to fit in? Oh my God. And then, and now kids have this thing. They can look at perfect people on the internet. I don't look like that. My body is icky. Should I like this? Like so much stuff. And then on the fact that all of these things are happening. So we can't, we can't understate one, how capable these young people are just to be able to keep moving and adapting. Mm. But also how can we try and understand them a little bit better to help them? Because none of these things are going away. So we can't say, stop using social media. That's just not a, Mm -hmm. it's not a fact. It's not going to happen, but we can try and I don't know, set some emotional parameters, figure out yes. why they, they, they might want to use it and things like that. What do you think? I, I, I tend to agree. My concern isn't so much that kids are going to be confused. It's more so that kids will be overly comforted. And I'll tell you what I mean. You know, we tend to think it's, you know, a really bad thing for children to be confused. They'll be confused about um, sort of gender diversity or they'll be confused by material on social media. I mean, when you think about the subjects that children have been learning in, in grade school, whether it's trigonometry or advanced calculus, I mean, kids are frequently confused, befuddled and have the capacity to kind of work through that. My concern with social media is that it provides an instantaneous source of relief and comfort. Now, it's not long lasting, the comfort. In fact, it only lasts for however long a given scroll takes place for, and it's a matter of milliseconds sometimes. But children are being deprived of discomfort, and discomfort is a really important source of social learning. It's also really an important function of self-empowerment and self-efficacy, right? So when we're comfortable all the time, when we have company in the form of social media all the time, we lose out of the ability to engage in healthy risk-taking. 
we lose out of the ability to be more vulnerable. And we also lose out on understanding what it means to just be experiencing unpleasant emotions. We have more than ever lower rates of tolerating distressing emotions as a society. We are so uncomfortable with discomfort and we have all the creature comforts in the world. I look at that as a concern. Absolutely. Absolutely a concern. What would you, what advice um, would you give maybe a teacher or parent um, who's struggling with this right now? I really think having time limits are critical, you know, abiding by specific time constraints for perusing social media is so important. And I would recommend that they not just be age related, but related to the given condition or headspace of the person who's on social media. So a 14 year old girl who or child who's struggling with um, body image issues, which is like every 14 year old I know, should not be spending hours on social media perusing through different, um, you know, body exposed related accounts, you know, they that that should not be the focus, having a 20 minute block of time, where there's a specific purpose for going on social media makes a huge difference. You know, if we walk into the grocery store and we don't have a grocery list, we're just really hungry. We're gonna buy things we don't want. We're gonna spend money we don't have. And we're gonna come home and realize, oh crap, I forgot the paper towels. I forgot the orange juice. I forgot the peanut butter, whatever. And when we walk onto social media without a function, a clear cut intention, and when we're emotionally starved and deprived, we tend to leave feeling even more depleted. We're not feeling recharged at all. I think social media is brilliant. And if we can utilize it in functional ways, it can be a fabulous educational opportunity. But right now we're turning to it for way more than it's intended to provide. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of things people I've connected with through social media, you know, me and right. you, right? I found your Instagram, right. your beautiful Instagram that everyone should go follow. And like, Thank I want to have a conversation with that person, that man, that like, how do, how do we get, how do I learn from him? Right. That's the beauty of it all. But what you're saying is, is, is perfect, right? Having this clear intention about why you're opening said app. Um, right. So is there, is there a, more concrete advice that you can give someone on how to maybe set an intention for sort yeah. of anything they're doing or specifically social media? I, I like the idea of really doing a bit of a check-in with self on a scale of one to 10. One is I'm super depressed or I'm super anxious. 10 is I'm completely at peace. I'm completely calm. I'm completely fulfilled. Where are you falling on that one to 10 scale before opening up the app? And where are you falling when you're midway through, let's say, the 20 minute block of time. And where are you at the end of it? Hmm. Unfortunately, what we're finding is that folks are walking away feeling less connected, less recharged, less purposeful, less positively about their lives and their circumstances when they're leaving social media and more isolated. So it's serving the opposite effect. And I, I really, myself included, have tried to be more uh, diligent and um, 
decisive about the accounts that I'm following, about the media that I'm perusing. And I have set check-in times throughout the week where I'll go to certain websites or you know, news publications and get my news for the week. So I tend to be the last person to know. The reason being is I don't wanna be bombarded with tidbits information about the world. I feel like if it's really that important, my husband will call me or they'll like announce something on the intercom of my building. But other than that, I don't wanna be bombarded or surprised. You know, I leave the surprises for Netflix and Hulu. So I think we've just gotta be more intentional and time limited. Yeah, intentional and time limited. That's good. That's a great place to start. Yeah, because like it's it's so funny. I I think like we we check in with ourselves at sort of r- random moments. Like we'll go to a movie or we'll watch a Netflix show and we check in about that. Did I like it? Would I watch it? Would I recommend it to a friend? We have all this laundry list of things about this like not very important thing that we just did. But like in a lot of the important things we do, like I just had coffee with a friend. Okay, how did that friend make me feel? Is that energy giving or energy taking? Social media, is that energy giving or energy taking? How can I reflect on this a little bit deeper on the more important parts of my life so I can stay energized um, for the day and for the things I really care about, but I'll do that for the you know Outer Banks Netflix show, but not for this relationship that takes up like a lot of my time. Exactly, it's kind of ironic. We can change that though. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely we can just by having a conversation about it and introducing it to a person and seeing how they feel and they like it and they introduce it to another person and another person and then there's this downstream effect of, of positive things, which is really mm-hmm. you know what a podcast or a social media post is for, right? So right. one person sees it and it and it snowballs into into a bunch of other great things. But right. <clears throat> the the other thing that's important for parents who may be listening is that it's really critical to be protective about having certain parameters for your children around time spent on social media, really knowing what accounts your kids are following. It's crucial in the same way that we wouldn't put a drug on a counter in front of our child and say, use it wisely, hope for the best, you know, be exploratory, you know, it's par for the course of, you know, there's certain boundaries and parameters and in a lot of ways cocaine and instagram are a lot more alike than cocaine and other illicit substances in terms of the effect that it produces on our brain and arguably social media can be just as hazardous for brain development as illicit substances so i think we know it's bad for us i don't think we realize most of us the gravity that can it can have on brain development on fostering aggression especially for adolescent boys but i shouldn't be so gender focused because it can be you know cross applicable um parents can really do a better job of really being mindful and attuned to watching what accounts their kids are following and doing a better job of modeling for their children healthier social media and just electronic practices in general. Yes. Yes, the role model there is extremely important. Extremely important because kids, um, like I very much learned from coaching them, is that they don't really care what I say. They care what I do. Um, Right. And what you do, they're always watching and they're so smart and they are going to adapt to that and they're just soaking it all in and they are going to do the same thing. I learned this lesson very valuably um, 
coaching baseball because I would think to myself, okay, I'm telling my kids uh, to be calm and collected. Okay, you made a mistake. So what? Doesn't matter. But then I grab my hat, I throw it on the ground, and I stomp on it. But I'm, right. I'm saying the right words, but my actions don't even follow that whatsoever. And then my kid comes to, play, to come to the plate. He bats. He strikes out on three pitches, and he throws his helmet in the dugout. I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you throw your stuff? You never throw your stuff. And then he goes home, gets a bad grade on his test, and yells at his mom. None of that – none of those uh, – the mom, the test, the baseball don't seem to be related. But someone he looks up to, his role model, his coach, is throwing his hat, is slamming his stuff, and – being aggressive when his words don't line up with that. So it all matches right. up. And I'm not saying that being a parent or a coach or anything who is in front of kids a lot is easy. It's, ex- it's extremely no. hard. Like it's the hardest thing you can do, but also has such a, a deep honor to be able to shape these young people's lives. And yeah. so we just have to be cognizant of that, of how we act in in these situations and how we want them to act. And And when we don't act up or hold ourselves accountable, how can we – sincerely apologize and and teach that sort of self and and self-forgiveness and forgiving others and 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 like learning these these skills early on to be able to adapt to the sort of the harder things that come in their life that's really well said yes you know because it's like you you you're one of your big things right is is feeling all of your emotions mm-hmm. so how can we how can we get young people to understand that when they feel overwhelmed or they feel stressed or they get heartbroken or Mm. um, they feel like they just can't handle this. How can we teach them that it will be okay? Like they can handle it. What are, what, what some of skills that you might be teaching these people that you work with? I think a lot of it is modeling. It starts with parents first, you know, acknowledging and accepting non-judgmentally all of our emotional experiences. You know, we cannot unfortunately selectively annihilate certain emotions. We can't say, <laughs> yes, joy, yes, hope, but screw you, fear, screw you, sadness. It's a one-stop shop and it really is a buffet line. So we can't selectively experience a given feeling. We either feel them all or we feel none of them. So when we annihilate the pain, we also annihilate the joy and the exhilaration. So I think it's about really modeling the practice of embracing and accepting in a non-judgmental way, all of our emotions, talking as parents about when we're feeling sad, when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling anger, That's really, really critical. I encourage folks to develop a mindfulness practice, whether it's five minutes of deep breathing, where we're bringing our attention back to our breath, whether it's journaling for five minutes every single day, just exactly how we're feeling in a given moment, whether it's doing a sensory exercise where we're noticing, you know, five things that are green in our immediate environment, Priming ourselves to be in the present helps us to scientifically helps us to be more attuned with and in consort with a given emotional experience. Yeah, because if I can feel that I'm, I'm sad today, I don't know why, you know, I'm just feeling that way. And I can relay that to my kid, but show them that I'm still doing the things that I need to do that I'm still showing up for them. I'm still showing up for myself, but I'm, I'm feeling a little off today and that's okay. Mm. Right. There's nothing wrong with you. 
You're just a, a human being experiencing different things. And mm-hmm. I think that that's important. And, and especially for young boys, the anger one is, uh, is challenging. But just like you said, not to right. say that no one else feels anger. Obviously, everyone feels anger. But right. it's, just, it's, it's, it's a complicated one because it, it can just boil over into some really, really, really not good things. Um, yeah. And so trying right. to just um, figure that out early. Like, okay, yes, you feel yes. anger. You feel it. What does that mean? Why? What can you do about it that's safe for you and the people around you? Um, right. And things like that. Look, I tell folks all the time, every single feeling has three things in common with another feeling. And those three things are there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. Mm. Right? All feelings will pass. And part of modeling a healthier framework and a relationship with a negative emotion, quote unquote, like doubt or fear or anger or regret or shame involves having a bit less um, of a hold on positive emotion. So it's great that you're feeling happy. Let's move on. It's got to feel upsetting that you're feeling anxious. Let's move on. Let's kind of embrace it and also move on. So we have to be universal in our practice. We can't latch on to the positive, you know, and dismiss or omit the negative. We have to kind of be a bit more passive and less engaged, right? Noticing in a non-judgmental way with a tone of compassion, but also passivity, right? We don't have to be in the trenches of every single one of our emotional experiences, even the positive ones, because they're all going to pass. That's the good news. Yeah. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. How yes. how do you um, work with people who strongly identify with the emotion that they feel? They feel like that thing is – that's who they are. It's consumed them instead of something that's just maybe part of them and that will pass. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's actually avoidance of an emotional experience to identify completely with an, a given emotion. If I identify myself as being an angry person – I'm actually avoiding the sensation of what it means to be angry. It's mm. it's it's the same coin, just a different side. You know, it's like in a relationship, if we're too enmeshed with a partner or if we're disengaged, both of those are patterns of emotional or intimacy avoidance. So when someone is so fused with an emotion, it's actually an indication that they're having a very hard time sitting with it. It's safer to become it than it is to experience it. So I would want to learn a little bit more about their history with that emotion. As an example, what did anger look like within their family of origin? How was anger metabolized, expressed? Were they scared when a parent or caretaking figure exhibited anger? And I would want to create a little bit more of a familiar framework with all emotions, not just anger. So when we're too tethered to something, it actually implies a sense of discomfort and or unfamiliarity. So someone who's so fused to a given feeling or emotional response, to me, that suggests that there's actually a lack of intimacy or awareness or comfort with that emotion. Why are we keeping it so close? Hmm. Could, I mean, that could that be the same framework for someone who says, I just want to be happy? 
Definitely. Yes. What does happy represent? What does unhappiness represent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's just like they get attached to it and then they sort of uh, bypass or avoid anything else that might come in because they just want to feel they want to feel happy. Saying I just want to feel happy is like saying I just want to live Mondays. (laughs) What about Tuesday? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Very good. Uh, I also wanted to talk to you. I was looking through your Instagram again, people should follow you on Instagram. It's every, every post is, is fantastic, but I was looking at Thank one you. of your recent ones on self-sabotage and I thought that was a, that was a good topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, cause there was about listed about six things that might uh, be something to look at when you feel like you self-sabotage. So could you just talk about what self-sabotage is? It might be self-explanatory, but we'll we'll go for it anyways. Sure. So self-sabotage is when we consciously or subconsciously interfere with a successful outcome in our lives. We're working hard on achieving a certain goal and we obfuscate or interrupt that process. And there can be many different reasons for why. In a nutshell, I'll do my best to explain them. Hopefully they coincide with what I wrote on my post. Um, But the first is, you know, our comfort zone. Humans are creatures of habits. And we often will opt for what's comfortable rather than what's best for us. So stepping outside of our comfort zone can be daunting and uncertain. So we tend to settle for what feels safe and familiar, even if it means sacrificing our sense of growth or personal fulfillment. So we, again, as human beings, we opt for what's familiar, what's comfortable over what's best for us. And that's really important to know. We're primed for familiar rather than fabulous. So that may be one reason. The other is a fear of failure. It can be a powerful deterrent to pursuing our dreams or taking healthy risks. So we may be afraid of um, rejection, criticism from others or experiencing setbacks. So we may settle for fine or good enough rather than striving for excellence. Another could be external validation. And society, as we know, puts very specific markers on what success is and moving towards something bigger, towards something different, might fall outside of the realm of what society governs as being the right move for us. So staying in that zone of what is customary or what is expected can sometimes be a part of interfering with our process of growth and development and really self-sabotaging. Having limited self-beliefs and self-doubt is something that's really important. It can hinder our confidence. It can uh, prevent us from striving for more, right? We might convince ourselves that we're not capable of something better, leading us to settle for less than what we truly deserve. Also a lack of clarity and purpose. So many people settle for fine many people sabotage plans because they have a lack of a clear purpose or direction in their lives. And so it's really important that we get cognizant and clear on what our vision is, what it looks like to experience personal fulfillment. 
And the last is complacency. You know, complacency can set in when we become comfortable with the status quo. And sometimes we may opt for comfort over what's best for us. So self-sabotage is sometimes more comfortable than pursuing our greatest achievements and goals. So we become accustomed to our current circumstances and we might lack the motivation or drive to make the necessary changes. So these are some reasons why we might self-sabotage. Yeah. I, I think of the fear of failure, then I also think of the fear of success. Mm -hmm. Again, that, same coin. Right. It's like, you know, because a lot of people will think about doing something, something that they've never done before, something they know that intrinsically that they want to do. And they're like, well, what if it doesn't work out? But they also say maybe, well, what if it does? And that might scare them even more. Correct. Uh, and so it's very interesting because I, I – I used to be a professional wrestler and at one point in my life I wanted to work for WWE and I'm like what what like what if it works out like what if I'm this like super famous John Cena-esque WWE champion and that that it's there's a little fear there because that's a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility but uh it also motivated me but I could see how that could be like oh I'm not even going to try now because that's just too much and I could mm -hmm. see how that could be a self-sabotaging uh, act based on your self-limiting beliefs, based on this fear of success, based on you not maybe wanting to put yourself out there. Because what if you do, and then you put yourself out in front of millions of people and you don't do it, but like you still tried. And I think that's just as important as anything else. So hugely important. Um, how how do you start working with someone who might be having um, these self-sabotaging beliefs. I know it's very general because you can't specifically talk about mm -hmm. an actual human being that you're helping, but maybe general thoughts on it. I think it's important to understand the function of those self-sabotaging beliefs, what, what they're serving, why they're in place, whether they're protective. You know, I think that we tend to engage in behaviors, even ones that are on the surface, not so good for us because they serve some type of what we refer to as secondary gain. There's some value associated with it that might be a bit more subsurface than overt. So I would really want to understand the function of living small, living outside of the scope of one's greatest potential and why that's taking place. I'd want to explore beliefs around success and failure. And I'd also want to have a better sense of self-talk and really work on challenging, amplifying, and augmenting ultimately the quality of self monologues that are taking place on a daily basis. And that comes in the form of changing habits. Yeah, habits, uh, daily habits create your life. But I, I also imagine that uh, past traumas have a lot to do with how people show up in that way, just like they have, they, yes. they, they, um, influence how we show up every day. But I imagine definitely yeah. thinking that you don't deserve this, thinking that you yes. should be small and weak and just be left in a corner and all of this very, very, very hard stuff. But I imagine that plays a huge role. Huge. For survivors of persistent traumatic experiences, one thing that we see kind of across the board is that individuals who, as an example, have sustained many years of neglect, sexual trauma, they tend to have a foreshortened sense of the future. In other words, 
a 10-year-old who's undergone significant trauma, a 30-year-old who's undergone significant trauma, tends to anticipate that their life will end a lot sooner than it may actually. They may envision living only until the age of 40 or 50. That tends to be kind of a universal thread of trauma survivorship. And because of that, the executive functioning skills, the planning, the anticipating, the thinking big is something that's not really a luxury that's afforded to trauma survivors in many ways. It becomes purely about survival. And when we're in survival mode, we're not really looking to optimize. We're looking at just remaining steady, staying small, and protecting ourselves from further re-traumatization. So you're absolutely right about that. Trauma can unquestionably impact our sense of self and our vision for the future. It, it makes me think about um, addiction because mm -hmm. I've, I've heard many addiction specialists say that that at the thing that someone got addicted to was actually potentially the thing that saved their life because mm -hmm. they needed that to help them survive instead of considering the other permanent decision. And when they get on this healing journey of trying to recover from this thing, there's a part of them that could say, thank you. Um, right. And that allows for some forgiveness to come through. Um, so they're not totally shamed and guilt ridden for that thing that they decided to do. Um, is that something mm -hmm. you believe to be true also? I think that um, substances, other forms of process addiction, whether it's compulsive gambling, um, compulsive overeating, sex absolutely serves um, a solution like quality for many people. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that most addictions start off as fun, then they become fun with problems and then problems only. Um, mm. I have a, a patient who once said, um, drugs and alcohol gave me wings to fly and then took away the sky. Um, and mm. so absolutely, there's an element of survivorship um, and kind of an insulation type quality that substances and other forms of dependency can provide and really create a safe harbor for some people who are really experiencing enormous distress and pain until it doesn't yeah. work any longer. It's right. the greatest form of betrayal. Mm -hmm. And then we have the, the greatest um, motivator for change is pain. And at least it was yes. for me in my life. Yes. Um, I, I, I've heard some recent interviews or interviews that you've done, it was it was a motivator for you to get into the work that you're doing. Definitely. Um, but it's, it's, you know, that's so hard to know that like, we have to go through something so hard and painful to try and survive one, and to also think, know that we can change and grow and adapt, and then want to get back into the same work, trying mm. to show people how capable that they really are. It's pretty cool, right? If we can full circle it and come around to that part of pain and optimize differently by giving back to others, by being more vulnerable, by making different decisions that we didn't have the ability to make at earlier iterations of our lives. Because I'm convinced that most folks do the best that they can with the skills that they've got, period. Yes, I, I take the, the Brene Brown route and just assume everyone is doing the best they can. It just makes my yes. life better. <laughs> Whether it's true or not, yeah, it does, like whether it is true or not, it does make my life better and it and helps me it try and understand people more than just being a quick judgmental person, which I've obviously done in my life. I'm not 
far from perfect, but just having yeah. those sort of things to fall back on to assume someone is doing the best they can um, just helps me out. So, yeah. I have a, one last question for you, Dr. Josh. Sure. And it's stolen from Tim Ferriss. So I'm not taking credit for this because he's my favorite podcaster. So you may have heard okay. this question before. Um, but if you were to put up a billboard in Los Angeles and millions of people were going to see that billboard every single day, what would you put on it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Get out of your own way. Hmm. Nice. Haven't heard that one yet in 165 episodes. So great job. And I think we can be in our own way by overthinking, by um, isolating, by making decisions that might fuel our familiar comfort zone, but ultimately not be in our best interest by not taking risks, by not prioritizing self-care, by not reflecting, by not practicing gratitude, by not having, you know, kind of a morning routine, things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your insight, for your time, for your energy, for everything. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. I'm so appreciative as well. Thank you guys. See you guys next time. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Dr. Josh. What was your biggest takeaway from that episode? What idea resonated with you most deeply? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbitz directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, You Are Loved. So click the link in the show notes and check out which tier might work best for you. But most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.